I hear it, but got it? Good. Okay. So again, we find ourselves in Romans 12, 9 through 13. The good news is this has been the last week that we're in this section. I know we've been on this section for probably five weeks now. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Let us pray. Most gracious God, Lord, we thank you for this beautiful paragraph that you have put before us this morning. There is so much truth and so much gold in these four little verses, Father, and we pray this morning that your Holy Spirit would sear our hearts and minds, that he would cause us to look at these passages afresh and anew and May they serve to strengthen our lives as Christians and strengthen our lives as with each other and strengthen our church. And Father, I pray that the words I speak be not of me, but be of you and bring you glory. For it is in Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. So as we've looked at this 12th chapter, I just went backwards. As we've looked at this 12th chapter of Romans, Paul has been giving advice, advice to Christians and advice to us in how to deal with other Christians. And, And that's the focus of basically this entire chapter, how we are to act and treat each other. It's a blueprint it's a blueprint for a healthy Christian life as individuals, and whenever you take that in the aggregate, it becomes a blueprint for a healthy Christian church and what that looks like in the world today. He's showing us the marks of true Christians and what a, a true Christian looks like, how they conduct themselves with each other when surrounded with other Christians And so while he encourages us to do certain things or exhorts us to do certain things, when you look at these, you can also use them as a litmus test in your own walk and to be able to tell where you are as a Christian and how you measure up or how we fail to measure up in many respects with respect to these exhortations. If our lives don't reflect these traits that we've been going over the past few weeks, there's got to be a reason for it. There's multiple different reasons, I guess. I suppose it could be the fact that we didn't know that this was the case. We didn't know that our love should be genuine toward each other, that we were supposed to abhor what is evil and cling to what is good, that we were supposed to love each one, each other with brotherly affection. Now, I guess as we've talked about in Sunday school, sometimes ignorance is bliss, but I hesitate or question this whole knowledge that we don't know about them. Because when we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, the Holy Spirit comes and he resides within us. And he doesn't reside within us in a mute fashion because things and ideas and desires flow from him. He creates things within us. 
And part of his creation within us is a desire, or should be a desire, to love each other genuinely. To abhor or despise what is evil and love or cling to what is good. All of these traits that we've been looking at, and they flow out of the Holy Spirit. So while I guess one reason that we don't know or we don't practice these traits may be that we don't know of them, I don't find that to be a very compelling argument because we all know of them to a certain degree or another, those of us who know Jesus. You can't know Jesus and not know anything about these traits. We may simply ignore them. We may see them, we may read them, you may hear me talk about them, and we just choose to ignore them. Now, for the same reasons as I I find the argument that we don't know about them faulty, I also find the argument that we don't do them or, or don't put them to effect in our lives faulty as well. It is impossible to be a true Christian and not exhibit these traits to a certain extent. Now, there's different levels, right? There are those that love everybody genuinely and those that love most genuinely and those that love some and those that love few our goal and our desire should get to the everyone right but unfortunately that doesn't happen so I think we all have in our hearts because we share the Holy Spirit the desire to put those traits in action in our lives We all have those moments whenever we look back and we see or have times when it's like, you know, I should have handled that a little bit differently or I shouldn't have said this or I should have said that. And that would have put me in a place where I was able to do some of these exhortations in a little bit better way than what ultimately I did. Finally, if these exhortations don't fit us, then we have to look at where we are in Christ or if we're even there. If we exhibit none of these, if we don't see them reflected in our life, then it becomes very dangerous because we have to question whether we're actually Christian or we are just portraying to be a Christian all the time. Are we just going through the motions or checking off lists or doing things that we think are going to help us in the long runs, in the long run, though Our actions may be godly, our hearts are far from him. And you recall Jesus basically accused the Pharisees of that exact thing. It is this third alternative that is the most frightening. Paul didn't give us these exhortations or these commands to frighten us. He gave us these as a sense of, this is what we're supposed to be doing as Christians as an encouraging type thing, and that's the way we're going to continue to look at them. But I just wanted to throw that out there, that if we don't exhibit these, then we have to question whether we share the same spirit, whether the spirit is even alive within us or not. So I think they can serve as that litmus test. So I want to go back this morning. I want to give a recap of this entire paragraph, these 9 through 13, and and how beautiful each one of these verses are before we actually get into this morning's verse. I think it's important that we remember that these are the ways and the goals and the ideals that we should have as we interact with each other. 
as Christians in a church, and in Christ's church, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, and hold fast to what is good. These are internal exhortations, and that makes them more difficult. It's not something you can just go do. To love genuinely is difficult. It's not something you can just check off the box and say, I've done it. And I think whenever I went through verse 9, let love be genuine and abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good, I separated them into two different weeks. But I want you to know that they go together. In retrospect, they go together. And you say, well, how do you think they go together? Well, look at verse 10. Love one another with brotherly affection. So Paul clearly is talking about our interaction with each other. So you let your love be genuine between each other. And then all of a sudden, he doesn't just shift thoughts. He, do, he doesn't just go on a tangent and tell us to abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. He's, he's not, it's not what he's saying. He's saying abhor what is evil with a respect to our late relationship and how we look at each other and how we treat each other and hold fast or cling to what is good. So it is all relationship-oriented and relationship-built between us. So our, our love shouldn't be fake. It should be real. It, shouldn't, it should be without hypocrisy, which is actually, as I went through this, what the Greek word for genuine means, without hypocrisy. <clears throat> when our love is not genuine with each other, when our love is hypocritical and really deep down we don't like each other, then what happens is when something bad happens to that person, we internally get a sense of enjoyment. We sort of like bad things to happen to people we don't like, right? That's so, so ugly in our lives. So that's why that exhortation to abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good is there. Love each other genuinely, and whenever we love each other genuinely, when something bad happens to them, we're not going to like it. We're not going to find joy in it. We're going to grieve with them. We're going to feel bad that they're in the place that they are. There's going to be no joy or no satisfaction that comes from some, something evil happening to some of us, to other brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's part of this exhortation that we, we love them genuinely, we don't like it when bad things happen to them, and we rejoice when good things happen to him. And that's why that, that exhortation is there. We don't let our brothers and sisters hurt alone. We don't let them hurt alone. We're there for them and we rejoice when they rejoice and we cry. And we're going to see that in the coming weeks. And we cry when they cry and we hurt when they hurt. So it's really a condition of the heart. And it takes work to get to that point. Don't think that you're going to wake up tomorrow morning and love every brother and sister in Christ genuinely. It's not going to happen. I mean, that's just not how we're made as human beings. It takes a lot of work. Most importantly, it takes a lot of prayer. Why do we not get there? We don't get there because we don't care to get there. 
We don't get there because it doesn't upset us. When we have another brother and sister in Christ that we don't like, the fact that we don't like them does not upset us. And that is problematic. If we want that to change, if we want verse 9 to be the all in all in our life, then whenever we don't have verse 9, it has to cause us to be upset. Because we're never going to do anything to change that until and unless we're upset about it. And until it grieves us. Until we go to God and ask Him for help in dealing with whoever or whatever it is. And that's the only way we can get through verse 9. We find ourselves oftentimes clinging to evil and coddling evil and coddling sin. And yet we get to the point where we don't want that to happen. So it's the same way with sin as it is for this love, let love be genuine. And we all fight the sin, right? We don't fight sin unless it upsets us. And that's a problem we have with sin. We have sin and we like to keep it. We, we confess it and, and we deal with it and ask for forgiveness afterwards. But we keep it in this little locked compartment over here and we don't get that upset about it. Well, when you don't get that upset about it, you're always going to go back and open up that compartment and get it back out and coddle it. And so for true change to come in our lives as Christians, it's got to upset us. Whether it be the sin that is in our lives or people that we just don't genuinely love, we have to be upset by this. Whenever it upsets us, we're going to spend a great deal of time in prayer, thought, in thought, thinking about the situation, and working on the issue, whether it be the sin or the people. So I encourage us, be upset when there's someone a brother and sister in Christ that you do not genuinely love. Let that prick your heart afresh because it's only going to change whenever you are upset about it. If you say that's just the way I am and walk away, it's never going to change and you're never going to grow in verse 9. You're never going to get to the point where you can love others genuinely. Same way with loving one another with brotherly affection and outdoing one another in honor. Recall we went over that. The brotherly affection is a special type of love, a love that's only found in families. And that was why Paul chose that word to show and demonstrate it to the church. This is a special type of family. And it's a powerful family, and I want it all to sink in with you. Most of all, all of you are sitting with your earthly families well, I want to tell you, this family that we have as Christians is special. Death cannot separate us. Death cannot separate us and will never separate us as a Christian family. So it's a special type relationship that we have here, and it should be a special type of love that we share with each other. And we should honor and encourage one another, outdo one another in showing honor, Accordingly, we celebrate each other's successes 
and we're there with each other and encourage them whenever failure arises. We are there for each other even in a deeper way than what a biological family will be for each other because it is a spiritual bond. It is a spiritual relationship. We get to last week's verse 11. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in prayer. And so if you you see what Paul's saying here, don't be lazy in your Christian walk. Adrian brought, brought that up as well this morning. When we're lazy in our Christian walk, the fact that we don't love somebody genuinely doesn't bother us. We just write it off. That's the way I am. If you don't like it, you can lump it. Well, that's not what Paul's telling us to do, is it? He's telling us to be genuine and love each other. It's easy to love those that are good to you, and we're going to see that play out in the next few weeks. But he's saying love each other, love everyone. That takes zeal. That takes hard work. You have to be fervent in spirit to be able to do that. And being fervent in spirit enables us to do a lot of things. It it brings the Christian walk to a whole different level. It enables us to know Christ in a better way. It It enables us to be upset because we don't feel the same way about one person that we do another. When we're fervent in spirit, it will upset us. It will cause us to want that to change. It will cause us to cry out to God for help. Because it is through His Spirit that He will enable us to love genuinely. Being fervent in spirit, working on our walk, asking God for help in every aspect of life, will prepare us, as we looked at last week, for whatever it may be. So it'll prepare us to deal with Christians that are nice to us. It will prepare us to deal with Christians that aren't so nice to us. It'll prepare us for every facet in life. When we're fervent in spirit and we're one with the spirit and we're active and we walk with God all day long, every day, there's nothing that's going to pop up that's going to surprise us. There's no hand that is going to be dealt with us that we don't know how to play it. And that was the point I made last week. Sometimes events, they always will. I don't say sometimes. In everybody's life, multiple times, there's going to be bad things happen. They're going to be dreadful. And we're going to want to avoid them. If we are not fervent in the Spirit, if we are not walking with God, when that happens, we're going to deal with them the same way the world deals with them, and chaos is going to ensue. Because that's been programmed into our minds. But when we're walking in the Spirit, we're going to deal with it in a godly manner, knowing that He's got our backs, that He's in control of it, that all things happen for our good, that nothing can separate us from His love. Knowing that this world is just a vapor and that all that matters is the next life and not this one. So when we're fervent in the spirit and we're not slothful but we're zealous, we know that we can get through those difficult times. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be in constant prayer. 
The hope of eternity with Christ creates joy within us, should create joy within us. When our joy is lost, it is lost because we have no hope. When you find someone that has no joy, you'll find someone that has no hope. They, they go hand in hand. So when we hope in Christ, then we joy in Christ. We rejoice in Him. So when Paul says rejoice in hope, that's what hope does. It gives us joy. When you think about joy, it almost has a future aspect to it or can have a future aspect to it. I mean, you can rejoice in the now, but oftentimes... Let's look at it from a worldly perspective. Something big is going to happen in the future. Whatever it may be. You're going to get married. You're going to have a baby. Brings you a great deal of joy, right? You have hope in that event happening and it brings you joy. You're going to buy a new house. You're going to buy a new car. You have hope in that and joy comes. But I will warn you and I will tell you that that type of joy and that type of hope is fleeting. And everybody knows that that's in here. Everybody that's ever looked forward to a certain event, whenever you get to that event, it wasn't as great as what you pictured in your mind and that joy that you had. While it was there, it does flee. Right? Anybody ever experienced that? That's right. And the world jumps from one event to the next and to the next to the next and never finds fulfilling hope. Thus, never finds fulfilling joy. But when we put our hope in Christ, that's eternal. That's all eternal. That never flees. The joy of eternity with Christ is ongoing all the time. It never reaches its pinnacle. It never reaches its zenith and then falls. It is constant and it is there all day, every day. That's the hope that doesn't disappoint. So when we have hope and joy of what's going to happen in this world, you're going to be disappointed in the end. Has anybody ever wanted and hoped for something, and then when you got it, it's just like, eh, not quite what I thought it would be. I hesitate to say that because I used the birth of a new baby as that, but honestly, you have hope in a new baby, and then you got to change the diaper, right? It's like, eh. And all the money, all the money. No, I'm just joking, but there is that aspect to it. But the hope in Christ never disappoints. There is never any downside to it. Be patient in tribulation. We looked at that last week. The tribulation that we endure in this life and in this world is God's way of taking us from one degree of glory to the next. And so we should be patient in that even though Everything in our flesh tells us to run from it as fast as we can. It is God's way of making us into whom he desires, into someone that's more pure and tried by fire and more like Christ. And that's why he asks us to be patient in that tribulation, knowing that that's for our good. And no matter how bad that trial may be or 
the pain may be during that time, it is nothing compared to the eternal weight of glory that will be experienced in all eternity for those who are in Christ Jesus. Be constant in prayer. We are to walk with God constantly. He is not just in this building. I like to tease those that I bring over from jail. They find Jesus when they're in jail. And I tell them, he doesn't just stay in the jail, guys. All right? Whenever you get out, he's out there on the street. But somehow you guys can find him and just make sure that you've got him in the jail. But then once you leave the jail, you leave Jesus back there. He should be in our hearts that we walk with and we talk with and we commune with moment to moment, all day, every day. Not once a week, not once a day. Not, I mean, it's just an ongoing relationship that we have it's like having someone else because we do the creator of the universe lives within our hearts and we commune with him and that's what Paul means when he tells us to be in constant prayer when we are in constant communion with God then we are prepared at all times for all things finally verse 13 contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Again, he's talking about our relationship with each other. And this passage is set up by all the others. To let our love be genuine for each other, and to love what is good for them, and not love what is bad for them. To show each other brotherly love, and to honor each other. And it is only then, whenever we love them in that way, that we can contribute to their needs to each other's needs. And that's what Paul's talking about here. We are quick to help an earthly family, right? Very quick. But how, are we, how quick are we to help each other as Christians, strangers, Christians? When we genuinely love the way God asks us to genuinely love, we gladly help out in difficult times. We provide for each other's needs many agree with all those things yet whenever it comes to money there seems to be some pushback right we like to do everything else but then we take the worldly view on money and things and possessions because after all it's mine right it's mine I worked hard for whatever it may be not going to give that up. And unfortunately, that's the world's mentality of that. We tend to fall into this notion or this idea that we own stuff. I want to disabuse you of that lie. You own nothing, okay? You came into this world without anything. You're going to leave this world without anything. And if you do leave it to your kids, they're just going to blow it anyway. So you own absolutely nothing, and you never will. And yet the world tends to make us think that we are defined by what we own. But that's not the case at all. What we have is on loan to us from God. That's it. Everything that we have is on loan to us from God. He pays for it. He pays himself for it. Our bank accounts are his bank accounts. He has graced us 
greatly of having homes, being able to provide for our families, and yet death will separate us from everything that we think we own. It's gone in a moment, in a heartbeat. He gives us these things, and he gives us them in abundance in order for us to share them with those who need, those who need them more than we do. Yet how many of us store up for ourselves treasures on earth that moths eat and rust destroy? The worldly way invading the church, isn't it? It's the world's view of wealth. God blesses us so that we can provide and help each other. Yet too often it is our own greed and our own selfishness that stands in the way of being able to do that. This passage in Acts we went through a few years ago, seems like an eternity ago. Acts chapter 4, verses 33 through 34, and how illuminating they are. The church was very young, extremely young. I mean, you're two chapters from Pentecost here. And with great power, the apostles were, were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and a great grace was upon them all. And here we have verse 34. There was not a needy person among them. Why is that? For many of them were owners of lands and houses, and what did they do with everything they owned? They sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and distributed it out to the people in the church. That's what they did. Nobody in that early church was needy because everybody that had sold it and helped out those in need. Helped out those who needed it the most. You know, part of the problem that we have is we don't recognize needs. We don't recognize when others have needs. And part of that's being self-absorbed. Part of that's so focused on me and my life and what I'm doing is I don't pay attention to brothers and sisters in Christ and, and whatever need that they may have or what need may arise if we truly, genuinely love each other, love each other with brotherly affection and, and go through all that, then we're going to recognize when there's a need there. We're going to see that in our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so that's part of the problem. We don't take care of verse 9 and 10 to get down to verse 13. Too often we would be happy to give, but we don't know it. Nobody ever asks. Well, I will tell you that there's a lot of folks that never will either. Never will. They will go through the pain, they will go through being in need, and they will go through that suffering and never once ask. It is our job to know in advance. It is our job to be in their lives, not because we're nosy, but because we love to the point that we know and recognize when there is a need and we help with that need. And we can't do that unless we genuinely love. If we try to encourage and help out, we should not have to wait to be asked to help each other. <clears throat> I 
Yet in order for us to get there, we have to understand that God blesses us to share it with those who need it the most. Ephesians 4.28, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. We like this verse, right? We like this verse because it tells us that people need to work for what they've got. And we love it, especially around this part of the country. You know, we don't want people going around begging for handouts. We won't, don't want to give away a lot of free stuff. We want people to work and make their own way, which is exactly what Paul's saying. So we love this scripture, but we stop after the second comma. We're stopping there. We work. We work. But what are we working for? What does Paul say we're working for? We're working to share. Mm. So we just take that little sharpie that's black, bleeds through on the other side of the page, and we start with so that he may share, and we just go through that. So we work to provide for our family and ourselves, and that's the end of the story, and we give out what little bit is required and move on. If you read the entirety of this passage, it causes us to reflect on why God blesses us with anything that we may have. He blesses us so that we may share, so that we may help those in need. That was a beautiful thing about his little feet, and I was proud of, very proud of you all that we were able to raise what we raised that night in, in this church. They need, right? And we look at, at, at the standard of living of those kids that are in India versus the standard of living that we have. I mean, how much they can do with so little amazes me. They, they have nothing. I mean, they're in orphanages. They... they struggle for anything they were in need and we helped them and I was very my heart was warmed greatly over that fact and how much we were able to help them Randy Alcorn is a former pastor and he's an author he has a wonderful quote quote God prospers me and this flies in the faith face of a large movement out there okay everything that I'm saying Everything that I'm saying flies in the face of the charismatic movement, but so be it. God prospers me not to raise my standard of living, but to raise my standard of giving. God prospers me not to raise my standard of living, but to raise my standard of giving. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Seek to show hospitality on What in the world does that mean? Well, I will guarantee you that there's a generation that I'm talking to this morning that can remember a time when there was a lot of hospitality that was conducted after church on Sunday, whatever time through the week, you had people over, you entertained people at your table, you knew each other. It's all part and parcel of loving each other with brotherly affection. When you have a family, you sit at the table and you share that table and you converse with them, you dine with them, you know what's going on in their lives, they know what's going on in yours, not so you can gossip about them, but because you love them. And there was a time 
when showing hospitality was a big part of the church. Anybody remember that? Yeah. It's not today, is it? It doesn't happen anymore. Very seldom do you sit down at the same table with your extended family. That's part of the problem. That's part of the problem. That's part of not being able to genuinely love each other. Because we don't genuinely know each other. How can you genuinely love someone you don't even know them? Knowing takes fellowship. Takes time together. Takes time showing hospitality to each other. To being able to contribute to each other's needs. You can't contribute to their needs if you don't know them. You know, we see this and a lot of people say, well, that's the church's job. And it is. And we try. But it's more than that. It's each one of our jobs as individuals to each other. I mean, the church as a whole is made up of the session and then other members and may or may not know what's going on in somebody else's life, but as individuals, we should know each other. I mean, we got a small group here. Big churches, I understand. That's a whole other story. But we got a small group, and there's no reason why we can't always be there to, to lift each other up, to know the needs. And it doesn't have to be. I focused on, on financial. It doesn't have to be that. More importantly, spiritual emotional, those types of needs are real, right? When we suffer through difficult times emotionally and and psychologically and spiritually, do we know it? Do we know it about each other, whoever's sitting to my right or to my left? But if we genuinely love each other, you're going to. And you're going to know it not as a desire to cling to what is evil and hope bad things for them, but it is a desire to help them, to lift them up, to pray for them, to let them know that you're there to talk to each other. We like to put guards up, and we don't want people to get too close. Out of fear. Those guards and that standoffishness is nothing more than a protection mechanism that we have as individuals. Because we're afraid if we're honest and open that they're going to go out and gossip and it's going to come back and it's going to hurt. But when we love genuinely, that's not an option. The only option is true brotherly affection that's there to help and provide for each other's needs. Doesn't matter what that need may be. It may be lunch money or it may be an all-night talking about a situation that is just tearing us up or destroying us from the inside out to be there for each other means everything for the church for other brothers and sisters in Christ so I encourage us all as we read through these words have the fact that we don't represent these words perfectly upset us Have the notion that we don't love genuinely upset us. And then let us pray about it. Let us work on this. Let us commit ourselves to doing exactly what Paul's asked us to do. Not for 30 minutes on Sunday morning and when we hit the door, it's over and I'm not going to think about it anymore. 
because that's how we avoid it and that's how unhealthy churches move forward. Amen? Let us pray. Most gracious God, what amazing words that you've given us in these four little verses that we can become so close as fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord God, we pray that these words would speak to our hearts and they would prick our hearts that we would be upset by the fact that we don't live up to that standard, that we don't love genuinely, that we don't always treat each other with brotherly affection, that we don't abhor what is evil and cling to what is good, that we don't contribute to each other's needs. Father God, forgive us for those failures, but we pray that your spirit this morning would guide us to work on it, to be in prayer about it, that we would know each other on a deeper level, a spiritual level, because we share you with each other. And we know that when that happens, then we will grow as individuals and and we will grow strength-wise as a church as well, and that you will be all the more glorified. We pray that you help us to take these words with us as we leave this building. And we pray for it is in Christ's name. Amen. All rise.